Welcome, everyone, to Lazypedia, and I am Coley Angel. I'm Bradley Holt. All right, first time we got the last name in there. All right, I'm not cutting it out. Did I? Was that really the first time? That is absolutely the first time oh, you no. have given your last name. Look at Doxed. All right. So take us in, Bradley. In our last episode, we were talking about North Carolina's political divide between the East and the West. Where we last left off, uh, the Democrats were kind of embroiled in their own internal civil war. This is 1858 or so, and we were moving in to the 1860s. where the opposition party had formed, which was a Western alliance of former Whigs and Democrats who supported tax reform. So if you recall um, in that podcast many aeons ago, we talked about how there was a big push from the West and lower classes for a tax reform. Um, the traditional tax system in North Carolina at that point, especially as it related to property, was essentially – Enslaved laborers did not count towards that uh, tax. They they were taxed on a poll tax, which was a per person basis essentially. Um, and and the issue with that at at the time was not anything moral about slavery yeah. or whether slaves should be taxed. It was wealthy people are paying a lot of taxes. And so they do whatever their form of lobbying was to try to pay less taxes in one of the biggest assets they had was slaves. Yeah. So, um, to make those tax exempt. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Uh, really, the issue was they weren't paying a lot of taxes at all because they wrote the Constitution of North Carolina back in 1835. Um, and so that's where a lot of these um, these issues come from. So, yeah, we, we talked about um, – the formation of the opposition party, and I believe that is where we left off. And if not, well, we'll have a little bit of overlap, and it'll be like, you know, when you finish a movie and then you start the sequel, and it's like the first five minutes of the previous movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. T- takes you in. Just a little recap, get you back in the world. Yeah. Um, it- it's strange in streaming days when you do that, because it's like, uh, yeah, I-, I just saw this. Carry on. Yeah, or... Actually, no, I'm not going to get into that because it will make me seem like a bigger loser than I already am. Um, so, yeah, so we'll 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 go from there where the Western Alliance of uh, the opposition forms. We talked a little bit about their naming. Um, they did not actually call themselves the opposition party. They just broadly referred to themselves as the opposition. They they really did not want to be seen as a party at all, um, which is something that kind of echoes what we're going to see. Um, in 1862 with the conservatives, um, which is actually the line I believe I left off on. So anyway, um, yeah, we'll move into it then. So this alliance forms 18, fi- no, 1860, uh, the alliance forms the opposition. So, so just, just for a quick recap, what brings them together? What, what are they opposing? Rich people. Screw them. Okay. Um, yeah, that that's really what brings them together. A lot of them were former allies when it came to the free suffrage debates, which was what the first part, the first episode of this little uh, grouping of episodes was. Um, but there were Democrats who kind of saw where the tide was going on the tax bill, and they wanted to get out ahead of it. Because, again, if you can get out ahead of it, you have a say in what happens if you oppose it the entire time and you eventually end up losing, you get no say in what happens. So some Democrats in the East saw the way the tide was moving and decided to jump over and help write the tax reform because it would allow them a say in what happened. Um, broadly, though, the, the Democrats were opposed to tax reform, which is kind of sad for them. Anyway, um, so yeah, that that's kind of your alliance. So... They have to run for governor. And again, um, in reality, the governor did not have a ton of power in the state. It's kind of similar to today where really it's the General Assembly where the power is mostly concentrated in the courts. But 
at this point in time, especially with the proliferation of newspapers and telegram, and so information is able to move more quickly throughout the state, the governor becomes the de facto spokesperson of the party. He represents the party itself in the state for the most part. So when Right. I, I can certainly understand that because I feel like that's how it is presently. Like there's there's one, you know, Republican in the state that speaks for the whole party. There's one, you know, president. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So you, you get that single individual that represents this, you know, grouping of, of interests. Yeah. Um and so John Willis Ellis is the Democratic governor of North Carolina in eighteen elected in eighteen fifty eight, has to run for re election in eighteen sixty, so he is kind of representative of the entire Democratic Party. So when the Democrats get attacked in newspapers, they're usually attacking Ellis and by extension every other Democrat down ticket, unless, of course, that Democrat has jumped ship. Like, um, there was one over in Wake County that we discussed last time. I, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, uh, but he, he jumped ship. Maybe it was Bledsoe. Um, Moses Bledsoe, I think, was his name. So, so, so when, when they run attack ads for, on the Democrats at this time, was it like, hey, this guy thinks he's so great. He thinks he's... He's the super rich, nose in the air kind of guy. Was that the vibe of the time? Um, it was more um, eloquent. So, like, for example, um, John Ellis gave a speech. Um, where did he give this speech at? Uh, he may have actually done this in Raleigh. Um, but. This group called the Working Men's Association have formed in Raleigh, which was huge um, because Raleigh was Raleigh and Wake County were Democratic strongholds. And this group forms called the Working Men's Association, and they their their goal is to enact tax reform. They don't like the idea that these plantation owners sit over on their estates forcing all of these enslaved laborers to work and then they reap the benefits without paying any taxes for it. So they're basically making more money than we are and not paying anything for it. And they're not even working. Their work they claim is just in the ownership of enslaved laborers. Man, it's uh, it's again just sort of like you're you're close, you know, like you're you're right to be upset about things, but also you're you know what were there abolitionists at the time was was that nah, any, not in any North sort Carolina of... no. oh no. no um so so yeah for example in the last episode we I, I read a passage um from the Tarboro Mercury that was republished in the Weekly Standard and so yeah if you want to know what the attacks actually look like I'll read it again for you real quick um. It's as follows. An ad valorem squabble fever amongst a few citizens of Wake County, nurtured by a certain few in Raleigh whose designs answer the purpose of titillating themselves far better than they would of gratifying anyone else if placed on paper. It's a bit more eloquent than, you know, he thinks he's so cool, but he's not. Yeah, so. That, that is a, a very eloquent uh, attack uh and it i it occupied my full attention i had to pay attention to every word to see where that was going yeah yeah it's a pretty good one it's kind of sad that we don't have the full article it's just a, a snort a, a short snippet that uh william holden the editor of the weekly standard which is a democratic paper in raleigh republishes to defend himself um so yeah um so john ellis decides he's gonna run for governor again in 1860 governorships were two years at this point um and ad valorem is showing itself to be the huge issue so ellis so remind us again what what ad ad valorem basically means um at it's essentially a at value tax so you pay a tax on the value of your holdings um and in north carolina the is shorthand for taxing the holdings of plantation estate owners who have enslaved laborers. So if their enslaved laborer nets them $500 a profit, that gets taxed the same way as someone working on their own netting themselves $500 a profit would be, which at this point it was not. They, they paid a far lower tax on this if a tax at all. Right. Okay. So 
in the West where you don't have these large sprawling estates, especially as you get closer to the mountainous regions of the state, um, Ellis is deeply unpopular for the most part. And in fact, he, he is fully aware that he's doing this. So he writes to another Democrat in the West and says, the opposition count largely in the mountains. You must have our friends there well organized. So he knows he's kind of screwed in the West. Um, and this, this whole issue of the West comes down to ad valorem. And in fact, in um, leading up to his renomination, re there were a bunch of rumors that if the Democrats ended up adopting ad valorem as a plank, Ellis would just flat out refuse to run. Okay, so, so the Democrats who are defending the wealthy interests of largely plantation owners yes. are considering adopting what is sort of proving to be a very popular idea, which is taxing well, yeah, this is it's a it's a similar strategy to what they had done earlier back in 1850 when uh, David Reed defeated Charles Manley for the race of for the governor's mansion by forcing the party to adopt the free suffrage plank, um, and that in turn kind of opens the can of worms for further reforms that eventually lead to ad valorem. Um, right. But the Democrats, they, they end up going with Ellis's stance and they oppose ad valorem taxation. They, they don't believe it is fair to single out a class of citizens and tax them, which even the, <laughs> even the rich ones. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. They don't want to do that. Um, so Ellis ends up being nominated um, and Holden kind of maintains neutrality. He doesn't really take Ellis's side here. Um, and so Ellis is writing for this Western support. He needs a mouthpiece in the West because he doesn't have one. He's lost. He's lost Holden, who could appeal to the people of the West. And so, so, so remind me once more who Holden is and, and what his interests. Yeah. Are. So William Holden is the editor of the North Carolina Weekly Standard out in Raleigh, a Democratic paper. And for about a decade, he's kind of the Democratic Kingsmaker. He's the one who puts Ellis in position to run for governor. He's the one who really pushes for him. He's the one who pushes David Reed to run for governor. He is the Democratic propaganda writer, basically. And at this point, he's not really on Ellis's side anymore. He's kind of starting to split. He doesn't outright split, but he the enthusiasm at which he pushes for Ellis is notably lower than in 1858, uh, to the point where other Democratic papers like the Tarboro Mercury are attacking him for it. Okay, so he's falling out of love with him. Maybe he's seeing the way the winds are changing and suggesting that the Democrats become, uh, I don't know if progressive is the right word, or just like, hey, we, we know that people want this and we're not really going to be able to change it, so let's uh, let's add it to our party because we have to. Well, he, he's, whatever that, whatever yeah, that he's is. quiet on ad valorem at this point. Um, and one thing about uh, Holden is he comes from a fairly poor family. He's not this aristocratic southerner like Ellis was. Um, or even David Reed before um, a decade earlier, basically. Um, Holden is self-made. He's not fabulously wealthy. He doesn't own a plantation. He owns a newspaper, really. He's a political guy. He's he's right. trained himself as a lawyer. Like he's a self-made man. He he's he doesn't hold tons of enslaved people, and he doesn't have that plantation income. So he identifies more kind of with the populist tinge to his um, writing. And as a result, he's very much for the free suffrage stuff to an extent early on. And then on ad valorem, he stays quiet. And as we'll see later, it's because he fully supported it, but was struggling to maintain democratic unity. He did not want the party itself to split. Okay, so he's, he's picking his battles there, and he is sort of half supporting uh, Ellis because he kind of has to, because he was his guy, and he doesn't have a replacement. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> what what's, it, what's really interesting is this Working Men's Association that starts up in Raleigh that I mentioned, um, Holden starts being accused of publishing their work. And Ellis, in a very angry letter, pretty much outright states this. 
that. Ooh, do we have any excerpts from said letter? Um, I don't think I have any right here. Um, yeah. It'd be really nice to have a little like paper crinkly sound <laughs> and you know open up the letter. Oh yes, here. Yeah, I don't have the exact quote here, but um, he does just just summarize. We'll, we won't look it up. He basically he basically talks about you know my allies have been circulating their papers against me everywhere, um, and he suspects that it's um, Holden who is doing so, or if not Holden, Holden's assistant editors who have grasped control of the paper itself. So, you know, he kind of okay. thinks it's like maybe this conspiracy and Holden's just doing everything he can to try to hold this party together and just get this get this train into the station now. Um, now, note the year. It is 1860. What else is going on in 1860? Uh, Civil War. Yeah, the secession crisis starts up thanks to some hot-headed ah. South Carolinians. Just just one? Just the one. Um so, secession doesn't really play much of a factor in this. Holden constantly brings it up because he's trying to unify the party against a common enemy, the aggressive North. Okay. So, so what was the, the sentiment at the time? Like, obviously, there's a big divide, but what was the, what was the South's notion, more specifically, North Carolina's notion of the North at the time? Um, aggressive, just big government, evil, but... We're in a union with them. We're going to try to make this work. North Carolina's uh, secession sentiments are very weak at this point in time. There is very little push to secede from the union right now in 1860, which, you know, could play a part in why it was such a small election issue. And ad valorem takes up the entire all, it, it takes up all of the oxygen in the room, basically. That That's really fascinating, because as somebody looking back through the lens of history, I would obviously think that that's on everyone's mind, but also having lived through some recent history, like 2020 and, and things like that, I've always thought about what were people thinking as history was happening around them? And probably an answer is just random stuff, just everyday stuff, you know, just just things 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 happening in their lives. Yeah. What, what are they going to eat? What are they going to do? Other political they're issues. They're not exposed to the 24-hour news cycle like people are today. So, they're not necessarily viewing it as history. They're just viewing it as another thing. Obviously, when the Civil War breaks out, that is viewed as a big historical movement. But like this, this stuff right here, they're not – it's just another political spat. Right. Okay. So, so at this time, 1860 rolls around. They're not aware of the, the, the significance that that will have. They're thinking about this political race and largely about the tax uh, policies at play. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And just specifying again, all state taxes, right? Like no, no federal taxes. Yeah, this is this discussed. is all state tax. Um, you don't have federal income taxes at this point. Um, federal taxes would be collected at the state level itself in a way you didn't pay anything directly to and for the most part the federal government's derived income was coming from import taxes for the most part okay and and my uh, vocabulary word is tariffs, tariffs. those yeah. are tariffs okay yeah but tariffs is a lot more negative than import tax and export tax so oh okay tariffs tariff is what you call it when you don't like it typically Oh, I, I thought it was like an official name I think name it is the something. official name, but it's usually only used in a very negative manner because of the Great Depression and like uh, ah. retaliatory tariffs, that sort of thing. But at this point in time, the federal government derives most of its income from tariffs. Man, is there any other word like that that's like the actual word itself is negative, but the slang and or the like longer form explanation of it is not seen as negative? I don't know. I don't actually know. Okay, you'd have to ask a linguist. I'm not. Mu I'm yeah, not much I'd of a linguist. I'm just a southerner. So, um, yeah. So, moving on from terrace, which that was a weird direction. Which is, I mean, terrace actually kind of play a part 
but that's that's later in the Civil War. We'll get there one day. So Ellis is accusing Holden of potentially spreading the papers of the working the Wake County Workings Men's Association, which is he he's absolutely correct in that they are uniformly against his reelection. They hate him and he hates them. Um <laughs> it, it's a very hateful relationship. And despite Holden's pleas and the standard for unity, the Democrats were splitting apart and the West was breaking away from the grasp of the Democrats. After just a few short years of harmony that was brought about by the free suffrage debate. And this this war between the Working Men's Association and conservative Democrats gets more intense. So a militia leader in Wake County is asked by Ellis for a recollection of a conversation the two had on the steps of the Capitol building in which Ellis had declared that he was going to denounce the Working Men's Association at every turn in his campaign and added that if John Poole, who we'll talk about in just a second, um, who was the opposition candidate for governor, were to support the association, he would, quote, denounce them worse than you had ever heard a set of men denounced for daring to oppose the Democrats. That is it, it's almost like I will insult you so bad that you won't be able to come back. I won't do it now, but I will he, insult you. Yeah, and really what he's kind of saying is he's going to treat them like criminals. That That's really oh, the okay. gist of what he's getting at. That's, that's he, He's basically saying, I will treat you like criminals. In fact, I will denounce you worse than I denounce criminals. So there's a bit of animosity between them. I'll say. Yeah, he mentions John Poole here, who was um, nominated for governor by this coalition called the Opposition. And he's just – he's kind of a plain fellow to a certain extent. He comes out in favor of ad valorem and even though he had earlier opposed it. But again, he's kind of one of those former Whigs that sees which way the thing – which way the tide is turning and he, he jumps aboard. Um, so, the Opposition papers note – Ellis's claim, his declaration with like, just they're so happy that he said this. And they start to sarcastically call him the Lord and master of working men. That, that seems a little ironic because that wouldn't like it be better if working men didn't have a Lord and well, master. Yeah, they're being, the, Isn't that kind of the problem? They're being super facetious with this. It, this was the Greensboro Patriot, which was a former Whig paper that now supported the opposition. So very anti-Democrat. Um, so yeah. yeah, they, they sarcastically call him the Lord and master and they, they say really what's making Ellis so angry. Isn't that people would get more rights is that people might get quote, get their hands into his pockets. So filthy, filthy hobbits. Yeah. So, so right there, he's basically, <laughs> he's the, the paper is basically saying this is all about money for Ellis. He doesn't care about the people. He, he, he wants to proclaim himself the lord and master of working men. Oh, I love the working men so much, but he just doesn't want you to take his money. Okay, so wait. Who's called the lord and master of working men? Is that John Poole no, that's, or, that's or is that Ellis? Ellis? The Greensboro Patriots Ellis. calling okay, Ellis. Okay, that, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Okay. The opposition's really hitting at classist arguments right here, and things aren't looking great for the Democrats. <laughs> that, it, it's a hard position to defend. Especially if you have people who are doing very hard manual labor and making money doing that, so you're like you're you're physically exhausted, and then you see like there's just a few people that basically don't have to work at all, but they have a ton of yeah. money, you know. And I think it 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 would probably work out in like a country that is like old, and that's just the way it's been for a long time. But I I just don't know if if America's old enough, you know, that they can just say, oh yeah, that that's the way it's always been. On we go. <laughs> it's the way we've always done it, so we can't change it now. Right, right. So, the Western Democratic papers, what few that there are out there, such as the Western Democrat based in Charlotte, um, they they do everything they can to try to mend this schism that's taking place between East and West. So, the Western Democrat attacks the ad valorem principle claiming that under the state constitution, taxing the enslaved based on their value as property would actually only increase the value of eastern counties, thus giving them more representation in the General Assembly and taking away representation for the West. So, a quick refresher on the way North Carolina's General Assembly was set up. The House of Commons is 
people-based. It is based entirely on population of individual counties. The Senate, however, okay. is based on the tax value of individual tax districts in the state. So, the more wealthy, the more taxes your county pays, the more representation in the Senate you receive. Man, I, I'm always just sort of like, one, a little like embittered that it was so uneven uh, for such a long time. But also, it makes me happy because a lot of political situations that we have today are sort of at least obscured by a few degrees of separation. Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that it's actually gotten like way better. Like, I still think wealthy people have super sized influence, but at least they take the time to obscure mm. it. You know, I, I don't know if that's better. That might be worse. <laughs> I don't know. I could live my dumb little life a little bit happier. Just not having to, you know, state out loud like, oh, yeah, like my county doesn't make enough money to have any senators. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit better now, but it's not perfect. But I again, I won't get into that now and be labeled a commie or anything like that today. The uh, Western Democrat claiming you guys, you know, if we do this tax law like you want to, you actually kind of lose representation. They're absolutely correct. Based on the North Carolina Constitution at this time. The Democratic claim here is 100% correct. And so the opposition papers, they rally to the defense. They're like, this isn't true. This isn't true. Actually, they don't do that at all. They just kind of ignore it altogether and just don't ever bring it up. You know, just out of sight, out of mind. Explain to me in very simple terms how it would increase the representation of the okay. East. So – at okay. this point in time, the enslaved laborers are just taxed on a per-person per, per basis, regardless of their purchased value, as terrible as okay. that sounds. However, if you switch that and you make it based on their assessed value to the plantation itself, then their taxable value skyrockets for the most part. Oh, uh, I think I'm tracking. Yeah, thus making so the plantation itself more valuable – thus giving it a more taxable income, so to speak, or a taxable wealth, thus giving that region greater representation in the Senate. It's uh, it, a lot of layers there, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, like, slavery, that's awful. Uh, taxes on slaves, that's awful. Representatives that are only representative of moneyed areas. I don't know if that's as awful as the other two, but uh, <laughs> that's not not what I would consider a utopia yeah, you know that yeah. that's uh that's not as good I, I don't know what scale we're operating on here so a, a lot of layers there and i feel like they're all sort of like okay you got to start peeling back these layers you know actually have any uh, do, do they have do they call this progress at the time where they're like oh yeah ad valorem tax that that's oh, yeah real it, was, progress. it was viewed as progressive Okay. Uh, North Carolina is kind of the odd state out most of the southern states had by this point switched to a system like ad valorem though Okay, really? So they're like the only ones who are not taxing these. Yeah, I don't very remember wealthy. who the other was, but North Carolina was like one of very few southern states that was following this system. All right, man. I'm going to need you to give me like one thing to hold on to that North Carolina has done well barbecue. in, you know, like 1858 oh, to yeah, 1860, they were doing barbecue whatever we're going to land. Yeah, they were doing barbecue. What's barbecue. that? Barbecue. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What, what did we do with barbecue? Eat it. Okay. Did we did we invent it? No, that was Mr. Barbecue. Okay. That doesn't sound right. No, his, doesn't his last that name stand was Quinn. For something? Yeah, his last name was Quinn. Okay, okay. Tell me about uh, that. Barnabas B. Quinn. He was a North Carolina what? guy born oh gosh, where was he born? I think it was Clinton, North Carolina. Yeah, it was Clinton. Okay. Uh he was born in Clinton, North Carolina, and basically he needed a way to extend the shelf life of his pulled pork. And so he decided, okay, if I add all the spices and salt and vinegar and stuff, that will help mask any, you know, bad flavor or anything like that. And he tried it and he's like, Ugh. damn, damn, dude, I'm pretty good at this. And so, yeah, that's kind of where, that's where barbecue becomes from. It just kind of, everyone just started calling it barbecue, just shortening his name. So. Right. Okay. Well, that... I, I had no idea that barbecue was was somebody's name. Yeah, that's Barna a cool Barnabas fact. Barnabas B. Quinn. Barnabas B. Qu is is the B like B E E or is it like just B like oh yeah? No, there's it's, some a, it's B a bit like name. Harry S. Truman where he didn't actually have a middle name. 
What? So the bee in barbecue is just a yeah. bee? I just made all of that up. I have no clue where barbecue comes from. What? Yeah, I, I genuinely have no idea. You could have just Googled it. Very convincing lie. I might even just leave that in. <laughs> okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm sorry, but Barnabas B. Quinn, I have no clue if that's a real person. You just put me on the I would have bought put it. me on the spot, and I was like, oh shoot, what's the name that Barnabas? I I don't know how I feel because like we're telling the truth about these other things, right? Like I I haven't gone and fact checked you on anything else. Uh-oh. Don't worry, there were three professors at UNC Charlotte that did. Okay, so <laughs> okay. you're saved. So, so you're you're telling us the rest of the things that you've told that, us. That's th- like those the are only true. lie so far. Okay. Yeah, it's a good okay. one though. You should use it. it. That was a very good lie. Where were we? Oh yeah, tax revenue. Huh. Interesting. Oh yeah, you asked for like one good thing North Carolina did. Eh, well, there you go, Barnabas. It gave you me to come up with Barnabas. So, um, so yeah, we'll we'll jump back into the uh the tax stuff here. You know, way more interesting than a fake man living in Clinton, North Carolina. Yeah, the, the fact that you gave him a place to live, that was, I, I, I've never been to Clinton, That's North Carolina. Place. I believe yeah. that. Well, maybe I believe that. I've never been. The only so. reason that name came to mind was because two days ago, I was working in the Federal Writers Project files of the Work Progress Administration, and they had interviewed a tenant farmer from Clinton, North Carolina, and that name just stuck in my head. Barnabas B. No, Quinn? No, Clinton. Oh, okay. Yeah, Barnabas B. Quinn, I completely made up on the spot. So, okay, well, well thanks. done. Uh, <laughs> the opposition papers, they avoid the thorny issue of representation in the Senate because the Democrats are right. Increased tax revenue will increase senatorial representation for the for the East, especially. Okay. So instead, they just you know are like that Ellis guy sucks, and the, Ellis doesn't do himself any favors in not making people think he doesn't suck because he goes and calls the western part of the state a bunch of leeches. the The, the interesting thing about this is not necessarily like. Oh uh, yes, here's this like really good point that was pointed out by the opposition, and that's that that's like a counterpoint. We need to like weigh our options and think about that. Instead, they're like, let's just attack the person. And I feel like that is a very popular strategy, probably because it's super effective. Where it's like, oh yeah, somebody's raised a good point. Let's just call them dumb and ugly. And yeah, and remember what I said earlier: the the governors, the the candidates for governor now kind of represent the party itself. So when they're attacking Ellis, they're attacking the broader party and they're ignoring the accurate claim of the Democrats of, hey, this is kind of counterproductive for the West. Um, But in the eastern part of the state, in Gatesville, North Carolina, which is up near like Pasquotank County, I don't know the... Also a real place? Yeah, Pasquotank. It's actually in Gates County. I don't know why I forgot that. Ellis allegedly states that the West was acting like a horse leech, crying out for more and more state aid at the expense of the East. So it's like a leech sucking the lifeblood of the eastern part of the state and moving it to the West. Right. Yeah. And he even gives like the specific type of leech. Yeah, but Ellis is like, I didn't didn't say that. Did he say it? It, No one knows. Uh, But the Raleigh Register, a former Whig paper that's now kind of taking its marching orders from the western part of the state. um, You may remember the Register from part one of this where they were very much a pro-eastern paper. Uh, But now they're a pro-western paper because, again, that's where the tides have shifted. The times are a change. And so the Raleigh Register issues a statement from its reporter who was in Gatesville listening to the speech, basically saying, so you're calling our guy a liar? How dare you? That that's a that's a really good response. Because I feel like, okay, you can you can attack like a system. You can be like, here's here's all this complicated things, here's how things work, and they would get more senators, that's actually counter to what you're after. Or you can be like, hey, let's attack this individual. And then if, if the individual is like, oh, yeah, what you said about me is wrong, you could just respond and say, you, you don't think we you don't think we can talk good. You, you think we're how dumb. You? you think we're liars. You, you think, yeah, like, how dare you? And then like, and then you just sort of drag them down to that level where that that's all they can do. They could say, no, I, I didn't say that. 
because that's all anyone's talking exactly. about. It forces them to continue to bring it up. And the papers do creatively continue to break it up by political cartoons. Uh, there's a really, Ooh. there's a really fun one where a bunch of horse traders are trading their horses and Ellis's quote is up there in capital bold face lettering to drive home the insult. And this is published all over the West and they republished anything they could find from Easterners talking about the West in a very derogatory manner. Is a horse leech like big? I would assume so. Or, horses or, are big. Okay. I've looked it up. Mm. The horse leech is a species of freshwater leech in the family is commonly called horse leech, but that is due to the similarity of its appearance due to the leech, which sometimes enter the nasal cavity of livestock. Ugh. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10. Yuck. As you can imagine, the West is very angry, and the opposition papers playing up on this don't really mention party. They they focus their attacks on Ellis, and they really try to make it into an East versus West battle, because they needed to drum up as much support in the West as they could. The goal in the West was to get those Western Democrats to pull away from the Democratic Party and vote opposition, or just stay home. Just be so disgusted with both of them, they just don't vote, because that lower turnout, in turn, would help the opposition. Okay. Okay, so at this time, we really have two parties. Whigs are gone. We've got Democrats, and we've got this opposition party that has a a separate party name, I assume? They don't, yeah, they're calling themselves the opposition, but they don't really have an official party, so to speak. Okay, but they they do like nominate politicians exactly, and yeah. they do the, the things that parties yeah. do. They just but we're not a party. They're, they're not a party. Different from those other yeah, girls. Exactly. The split among the Democrats continues to grow and Holden sitting out in Raleigh with the Weekly Standard is becoming more and more isolated. Um he is beginning to be accused of being a puppet of the opposition and the Democratic papers start really pushing these strongly confidential or confidence filled headlines, such as like Ad Valorum doomed and the East protest against the demolition of the Constitution. So on the public side, they're putting up a strong face. You know, this is doomed. This is, you know, we're going to be fine. Privately, they they're they're in a full blown panic. Um, one conservative Democrat <laughs> writing to another uh, wrote, quote, there will be a desperate effort to made to revolutionize the state upon the ad valorem principle of taxation. The attempt will be made to carry it in the West by getting up a fury against the Negroes in the East. In the East, it is to be urged on the ground of it being a poor man's law. And he goes on to state that they need to put it into this irrepressible conflict brought home. Okay. Can you explain that guy's quote? Because I'm not sure I understand. Hey, over in the East, they have all these enslaved laborers they're making a ton of profit on. They're not working and doing anything, though, but they're not paying taxes on any of that profit. Yet we're over here doing all of this work and being taxed. Um, And then in the East, the opposition says this is a poor man's law. This is to help our fellow white man who is down on his luck. And the opposition papers... Yeah, they're like, yeah, we're totally doing that. You're right. Um, (laughs) And we're going to keep doing it because it's working. And so they claim that the Democrats, and this is one of these weird twists of logic, they claim that the Democrats are the tools of abolitionists because they are taxing enslaved people as people and not as property. So they're... The opposition is trying to link the Democrats with the Republicans of the North, as weird as that sounds. That is a weird, a, a weird twist because I, I think that for the most part, I identify a lot more with the opposition party being like, oh yeah, let's, let's not have wealthy people not have any of their assets taxed. Cause I think that's, you know, that's just a class of person that I am, I guess. <laughs> uh, but now, now I don't agree with any of them <laughs> because I, I'm, you know, the only persons I think that, that had had any sense at the time were abolitionists who were like, yeah, yeah, that's a horrible thing. Let's stop doing that. And the rest of these people are just sort of like, but what about the money involved? <laughs> it's always about the money. Unless you're uh, Kingpin and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. It's not always about the money, Spider-Man. So. <laughs> have you not seen that movie? 
Uh, I have. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't remember the quote. I only know it because of the meme. It's about the Mets, baby. Let's go Mets. I, we should totally have a history meme no, section so, that's where so we just cringe. no, no. no there, there's a lot of no, memes out so there that cringe. deal with history, and you could just dissect it no, for us and you explain so to all of us, uh, all of us average non-history folk, what the uh, than me what the anyways, meme means. No Why point. is it funny? The, Why should we like you're, it? You're lesser than me, anyways. It won't help. Um, <laughs> so. The opposition papers are beginning to note that Democrats are coming around to their side. They they make a claim, all times are right to do that, which is a benefit to the people of the state. Some Democrats are like, oh, we can't do this yet. We need to move more slowly. And the opposition is like, nah, screw that. It is always the right time to do the right thing. Is it? Yeah, it depends on what your definition of the right thing is. Um and so th- the opposition, though, gets into a little bit of a tiff because the Democratic Convention platform claims that if taxes on enslaved people were raised, then all taxes across the entire state would be raised as well. And the opposition's like, are you threatening us? That, that doesn't really make sense. It's like, hey, we're going to make more money as a government. Like the state will take in more money from a new tax. So, therefore, we'll have to raise other taxes to have even so more money. here's another weird quirk in that 1835 North Carolina Constitution. You okay. cannot raise a tax on a particular species of property without doing so for all taxes across the board. Fascinating. So, was what was the what was the mindset behind that? Is it like so? The mindset is absolutely to try to prevent enslaved people from ever being taxed oh if you tax our property well we're just gonna have to raise taxes on everything it's in the constitution oh my gosh that's mutually assured destruction exactly that it is politically mutually assured destruction (laughs) that's that's hilarious that's written into the north carolina constitution into the 1835 north carolina constitution it was actually written into the original one which was who cares? Sometime in the late 1700s. Uh, but when they revised the Constitution in 1835, it stayed in. Oh, my gosh. I- I'm trying to think of, like, an analogy of-, of exactly what that's saying. But essentially, it's just like, hey, you screw with me, then everybody's going to be screwed. Yeah, that's basically it. I will stab everybody in this room before I stab myself. <laughs> you stab me, everybody's got to mm-hmm. get stabbed. It's just how it is. I don't make the rules. The Constitution speaks. So, the campaign's coming to an end. And as you could tell, um, it's it's a bit heated and everyone's really worked up. And then William Holden, that Democratic bastion of good tidings and, and not so much anymore, he suddenly comes out in favor of tax reform. He finally lifts the veil. And says, I am in favor of ad valorem. Additionally, Ellis's charges that Holden was secretly publishing the papers of the Working Men's Association is partially correct. Holden's assistant editor was essentially the leader of the Working Men's Association. Needless to say, Ellis and Holden weren't very good friends anymore. I would love to have some like excerpts between the letters like right up into the time and like right after he told them because i like to imagine he wrote like a very pointed letter to ellis and he said it was me yes it was it me, was me Barry. and I'm, I'm telling you now <laughs> it was me all along yeah. uh yeah and i'd like to imagine he owned it in a very eloquent way also i've thought of another analogy okay. it's like in this constitutional provision if you say that uh you know my 10th car gets taxed a little bit more than everybody gets a tax on bread. Yeah. Yeah. That tax on bread go up. Yeah, pretty much. Like we don't we don't want taxes to go up on my 10th car. I mean, that's that's essentially what it is and they managed to get that in the constitution as a compromise too. <laughs> I I just like to imagine like the people probably writing this are like, "Oh yeah, we're we're all this level of wealthy, right?" Like Nobody's going to be upset or point out how messed up this is. Like we're all we all benefit from this, so we'll all just sort of nod and say this was the best thing to do. Yeah, and it works so long as everyone continues to nod and say this was the best thing to do, and no one gets like William Holden here becomes 
a de facto leader of your party and then decides, yeah, I don't like this so much. I, I think, you know, yeah, you, you can hide some sneaky things like that for a time. But I, I think that there's always sort of like, oh, yeah, this isn't for the good of the populace. And some sneaky person will point it out. And, and I don't know. It's also random because I feel like people's attention span is like, are we going to get upset about this today? Or are we going to get upset about <laughs> that today? Like, you know, it's, it's really random. Like, there's a lot of terrible stuff going on at this moment. But I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with it all. Uh, my my you know, emo- so like, my emotional bandwidth was maxed out when uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I just can't deal with anything else now. I'm practically done for. <laughs> that was it. The straw that broke the canvas. No, I'm done. I can't even get out of bed in the morning now. Why did Will do that, Mom? So, <laughs> so the votes get cast. And it goes exactly like you expect. John Poole gets a ton of votes. He runs up magnificent margins in the West. Um, and he, in fact, surpasses uh, Duncan McRae from 1858's vote totals by 13,000 votes. So he does incredibly well, just not quite well enough. Ellis wins. Oh, man, what? That was a whole lead up. Yeah, I know. I misled so, you. There. So all this back and forth, like Ellis just had it. He it, it, it just had it in his back pocket. Yeah, not by much, though. 6,000, which I mean, it sounds like a lot, but it was um, he he ended up basically proportionally losing votes based on the number of votes that were cast, cast in total. He lost votes. I have very little sense of how many people lived in the state at this mm-hmm. time. Also, I I also am trying to think back to the rules of like who gets to vote at this time. So is this just like land holding white men no, at this time? This is any white man in North Carolina. Any white man in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, okay. And Ellis still had some Democratic goodwill from the free suffrage debates ten years earlier, where any white man was then allowed to vote for the Senate, even if the Senate didn't necessarily represent them. Before that point, it was you had to own a certain amount of land because the Senate represented wealth and land. So, right. The election comes and goes. Ellis wins. Everyone is like, oh, well, that's it. Eh, not quite. Uh, because this little thing called Lincoln becomes president thing happens. Okay. Wait, was that the same year? 1860? Yeah. Okay. It doesn't elicit much much feeling in North Carolina. So North Carolina's turnout for that election was really low and there wasn't a ton of political discourse around it. That election happening after the governor's election in North Carolina, like two or three months later. Because their emotional bandwidth, mm-hmm. it was just, up. I mean, that it kind of, it kind of feels so that way. Like this, this campaign sucked out so much energy from the politics of North Carolina that when Lincoln wins, it's just, it kind of feels spent. Um, but don't right. worry, it, it picks back up. So Ellis, okay. in his first speech after being reelected, he goes on to denounce Lincoln. He's like, yeah, I'm going to defend the state independence. We're not getting involved in this whole secession thing, though. Lincoln's a bad dude. Don't come to us asking for troops. But, you know, we're going to stay in the union. He spends okay. far more time instead denouncing ad valorem taxation. And he claims that implementing such a tax would, in fact, rip the entire social fabric of the state apart, saying, quote, It appears then that our whole social fabric is based upon and sustained by slave labor. So if people ever wow. want to ask you what the Civil War was about, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like the people at the time didn't have much question no, about it. They were just sort of like... The, the questions about it don't really come about until after the South loses and tries to make themselves look good. Oh, uh, yeah, no, we weren't the ones that fought to, like, maintain this system of slavery. No, we were fighting for states' rights. So you guys shouldn't have written down all those speeches. Exactly. <laughs> so in the same address, Ellis argues for tax cuts and then requests a ton of money for everybody. Does everybody get an God, equal tax no. cut? He, he he speaks in very. But what about the he Constitution? Speaks in like, very broad terms here. He's not arguing for specific tax cuts. Okay, but like uh, no, okay. you could totally in, lower in the, taxes in the individually. You could totally lower them individually. You just can't raise. But you them. can only raise all of them at the same Pretty time. Much? What? That's politics. That's a 
oh man that is like a, a very like just like the the person who came up with that mechanism Sniping is whiplash. Uh, <laughs> is that their name? No, that, or is you that know another the character name from um, Dudley Do Right? No, uh, look him up right now. Okay, Snidely Whiplash. Snidely Whiplash. I gotta gotta remove my search for a horse leech. Snidely Whiplash came right up. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks, yeah. Your stereotypical I- evil villain. Right, I didn't know this guy had a, had a name. I've I've seen it, it's the guy in a top hat with a big handlebar mustache, yeah. sort of uh, holding his hands, plotting and scheming. Yeah. Looks like he might tie you to a railroad track and and wait for the train to come and run you yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what he does in Dudley Do Right. Okay, played by Brendan McFraser. So he he's arguing for these across the board generalized tax cuts, and then he also goes. Oh, by the way, we need to increase our spending to prepare for a potential war. Huh. No. Huh. Slip that in there. Yeah, he just kind of snuck it in there. Hey, let's get these forts, man, just in case. So the Democratic papers and Ellis, uh, the ones who are very anti-ad valorum, they're agitating for secession. They're they're kind of ready for the fight. Uh, oh, boy. Ellis isn't explicitly saying it, but he's preparing the state for such a thing. Holden, once again, has broken from the Democrats here, and he's instead arguing for preservation of the Union. As a result, he is then labeled by Democrats as an extremist and a traitor to North Carolina and the South. So at this point, Holden's like, all right, gloves are off. I'm done. Okay. He launches a full-blown attack on Ellis and the Democrats and claims that Ellis is by far the weakest Democratic governor ever elected. And he has betrayed the true democratic ideals. He does not represent the people, and he has lost the West. Okay, wow. So, like every insult he can come up with that is probably like political, politically salient at the time, he's just throwing it out there. See, see him what sticks. Yep. Right. He he's weak. He doesn't represent our party. He doesn't represent you. He stinks. He, yeah, he's basically at this point, he's, yeah, he, he's done. He says, I'm, I'm representing the true Democrats now. These people, I don't recognize who they are anymore. He said, look at me. I'm the Democrat. Yeah. Holden, Holden tries to portray himself as the old guard Democrat. He's not, Ellis is very young. uh, Bear in mind. He's in his late thirties, I believe at this point. And so he's kind of a Democratic superstar, and had he not had something happen a little bit later that I'll tease, um, he, he, there's a good chance he would have been a major player in the Confederate government, because he was, he was exceedingly popular. Did he die? That's the only thing I can yeah, think of what happened. Yeah, he died. Um, just Ugh. kind of out of nowhere. Okay, I should have just left it Yeah, you ruined out it. There. But don't worry, I'll make it. I'll make Wait, it. no, no, no. How did he die? I'll get there. So. Okay. Holden is now free from the Democratic Party to kind of do whatever he wants. And so, like I said, the gloves come off. Um, The associates of Holden who are working the Working Men's Association, they decide to form a new paper called the Weekly Ad Valorum Banner. Its motto, Constitutional Union, Equal Suffrage and Equal Taxation. Okay. So, they claim this- But also, like, still pro-slavery? Yeah, no. No shit. (laughs) Of course, they're (laughs) pro-slavery. Are there any abolitionists in North Carolina? No. no. I'm just hoping. They, they, I'm hoping the answer well, changes. Yeah, the enslaved people were abolish, abolitionists. All right. So this paper um, claimed to speak for the poor against the wealthy, and it tied secessionists to the wealthy upper class who enriched themselves. We're about to see with this example that they're not exactly wrong. Um, Catherine Edmonston was a fine old lady who lived out in eastern North Carolina. She was the wife of a very wealthy plantation owner, and she denounced people who were not secessionist. She got into this big argument with her brother-in-law and her sister, and her sister claimed to her, quote, 
you slaveholders have lives so or, sorry you slaveholders have lived so long on your plantation with no one to gainsay or contradict you and you are enslaved only look up and worship you that you expect to govern everybody and have it all of your own way so breaking that apart here she basically says you've lived insulated on your plantations for so long that you've only got people around you who have no choice but to say yes to you and listen to everything you say and do as you command and now you expect to to just put that on everybody across the state to just have it all of your own way it's probably like a million percent true and the brother-in-law then asks Miss Edmonston if she really expected the West and the white population who have no enslaved to fight for her enslaved. And she replied that they absolutely would. It was their patriotic duty to do so. Damn. So. That was a very prescient thing to say. Because I think that's exactly how it was spun. Edmonston herself records this. This isn't the account from her sister and brother-in-law who were attacking her for it. She herself (laughs) proudly writes this down in her diary. Oh, my gosh. So, when Holden's people form this paper, the Weekly Out of a Lauren Banner, and they claim that they're speaking for the poor against the wealthy, it's people like Edmonston who are giving them plenty of ammo. Right, Yeah. Well, hold on. If she writes this in her diary, that's, that's I would imagine, somewhat private. Did we get this after she died? Yeah, or yeah. was this sort of it's like, like a, she's walking around town like, hey, you want to see what I, I wrote mean, in my diary? I mean, based on the way she writes in her diary, I wouldn't be shocked if she then also just showed it to people. This woman was wild. Very. Yeah, I know. To to, to just sort of be like, oh, yeah, like, you, you will fight for me. I, I'm a wealthy individual and I need to protect my interests. Uh, and, and everyone's got to fight for me. It's their patriotic duty. And I feel like that's like, uh, just very on the nose, right? Like it's, it's very blunt. Oh, and she's mad afterwards, not because she felt like this argument or anything, but because it ruined her appetite for dinner. Oh yeah. She's a very aristocratic woman. Her husband is an extremely aristocratic man based on the way she writes about him. So you have this class of insulated plantation owners. You now have this upswell of people who are very, very strongly against them. And North Carolina itself looks like it's kind of being ripped apart between East and West, the wealthy East not caring about the needs of the West, the West just pure hatred towards the East and unwilling to work with them on anything. And so now the big question coming up is secession. How does this affect that East-West divide? So that w- that that will be um, kind of what – Next week's episode? Yeah, next, next year's episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we, next time on um, North Carolina's weird development, um, Ellis abdicates in deadly fashion. Uh, North Carolina secedes from the Union. Things kick, get kind of gnarly and heated. And then we have the election of 1862, which is kind of the grand finale of this story. Okay. Can we get, can we get a little teaser about what happens to Ellis? He goes to West Virginia. All right, that's that'll do for now. Every single person who's ever set foot in West Virginia has died in history. That is hard to argue and with. Ellis is one of them, though. At the time, it was okay. technically still Virginia. Okay, so he just went up to a, um, I think it was called Sulphur Springs. Okay, no, 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 you're teasing too much. We gotta, we gotta leave them wanting more. They can just Google it. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's that's the end of the story for today. Okay, that was that was a very very good story. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Lazypedia. I'm Coley Angel. Oh yeah, I'm Bradley. I don't have a last name anymore. Do you know the story of uh, Do you know the story of Carrie Nation? No. Uh, she was a prohibitionist in the late 1800s in Kansas, 
who claimed it was her God-ordained duty to take hatchets into saloons and bars and just wreck everything in them. And she did so in uh, three of them in one city, and then that city got hit by a tornado. And so she took it as divine approval of her actions. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay, so did she... Is she, like, alive and well today? What happened to this this person? She died of old age because it was the 1880s. Oh, okay. Um, On the flip side, she also opened one of the world's first sheltered for battered women. Yeah. Very good. I mean, like, you know, I'm not anti-drinking, but uh, do it in moderation, I guess. Don't, don't, yeah. Or don't. Or don't. No, I mean, don't do it in moderation. Just go nuts drink like they used to drink in the early 1900s just like shot of whiskey for breakfast and you're good to go for the rest of your day on like hating minorities and beating women oh gosh hey it's the 1900s baby (laughs) turn of the century it's a new world we can we can hit women right oh no quote i uh woodrow wilson (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh is, uh, was he like that no nah, is that nah, is that a real nah, fact he had a stroke okay but he didn't hit any women nah, did i don't he? know i'm not his babysitter i don't know what he did 